Keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 3. Before I begin, I want to tell you two things. One is, in the bulletin you have, I forgot to say this, you have an announcement about a youth activity that's for 7th through 12th grade. Also, if you have an iPhone in here, would you raise your hand so I can see how many people have iPhones? Oh, look at that. We are now on iTunes for, I guess, podcasts. So these sermons are on podcasts now. So if you want to listen to the messages that we're uh, that are delivered here Sunday morning, then you can go on your phone and you can download those each week. So, in fact, you can even download the ones from when Roger uh, preaches past year. So, because <laughs> it's God's word is why. That's right. Okay, so we're continuing our study here of the Gospel of Mark. The last time we were here was December. We were in Mark three thirteen through nineteen, where Christ appointed his twelve disciples. And now the book is at a transition. Christ's 12 apostles are selected and they are officially beginning their training. And there are a number, if you remember, there's a number of disciples who are following Christ as well. And the religious Sanhedrin in Jerusalem has escalated their opposition to him. And we're going to study the passage that was read this morning, Mark 3, 20 through 35. What I want us to see in this passage this morning is... The curtains pulled back on this life, and I want us to see the celestial war that's taking place behind the scenes of life between God and evil. The title of my message today is The Invisible War Between the Loser and the Lord. The loser is Satan, and the Lord is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In our world today, we see conflicts everywhere. There are conflicts all over the world in regard to physical battles and wars. One person, one reporter estimated there was between 20 and 30 wars in the world in 2018. And beyond the physical altercations, our world is filled with political feuds and clashes in our homes and and marriages that are breaking apart and families who have conflict. In fact, our own hearts face the war of our sinful desires, right? First Peter says that, that our hearts face the fleshly desires that war against our souls. So we we feel and we see these external conflicts. But behind the scenes of life, there's a greater cosmic spiritual war taking place. It's a war versus good and evil. It's a war versus God and the evil forces led by Satan. In fact, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul writes, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, that's humanity, but against rulers, that's spiritual rulers, against authorities, that's spiritual authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, that's spiritual darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What Paul was teaching here is that behind the temporal problems and conflicts of life, there's a spiritual conflict taking place against God that's out to destroy people and homes and lives and ultimately to oppose God. So what we'll see in our text today is this spiritual war taking place. Now, if you remember from the beginning of December when we taught last in Mark, they were on the mountain, the disciples were. And Christ selected 12 apostles. So they had their, you might say, their mountaintop experience, right? 
I mean, they got selected to follow Jesus. I mean, think about the excitement that these guys would have had, right? They got to be with Jesus. They get to experience his power. I mean, he has authority over demons. He is healing sick people. He can multiply food, right? This guy's, it's awesome. Like they're excited about what God has. And they come down from this mountain. And the first thing they face is opposition, right? You ever had something in your life like that where you have a, a mountaintop experience? Maybe you go on a missions trip or something like that. Or maybe you go to camp if you're a teenager or, or something like that where you're, you're experiencing God's work. Or maybe you have a relative that gets saved, right? And then what happens right after that? You experience the reality of life, right? <laughs> maybe you walk back into a home that's facing conflict and conflicts of life persist. And that's what happens to them. Look down at verse 20. The Bible says they went back to their home, or Jesus went back to his home. And the crowd gathered again, so they couldn't even eat. So they're not even able to do the basic necessities of life, provide for those kind of things, and eat. And this home that Jesus went back to is Capernaum. Remember that he lived, he grew up in Nazareth, but he actually was based out of Capernaum. And likely he was staying in the home of Peter and Andrew, like he did earlier in the book of Mark there. And and as it happened before, when they went to that home, the crowds gathered, and so much so, they were in the house and out of the house and kind of pouring out from everywhere that they weren't even able to eat. But there were two groups that came to that location and opposed Jesus. First was his family, and the other group were the religious leaders from Jerusalem. Look down in verse 21. The Bible says, and when his family heard about it, that's Jesus' biological family family, right? His half brothers and sisters. They heard about the rumors about Jesus. They went out to seize him for they were saying, people were saying he's out of his mind. So they walked 30 miles from Nazareth to Capernaum to maybe protect Jesus, maybe to get him out of that and say, you know, Hey, people are talking about you. They're saying you're crazy. What were the rumors about Jesus? People say, we're saying, you're, he's out of his mind, right? He's crazy. And remember, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which is interesting to think about. Those people in Nazareth, they knew him just as a regular boy when he was growing up and a regular man when he grew up, which is interesting because I think that this actually shows how ordinary Jesus was, right? When they heard about Jesus and the claims that he was making, that he's God, people were saying he's Messiah, their conclusion is, well, we knew him growing up. He's just an ordinary person, right? nothing special, right? And they, their conclusion is, this guy's insane. In fact, Mark chapter 6, if you want to flip over there, keep your hand in Mark 3, Mark 6, we see this happening when Jesus actually goes to Nazareth and he preaches in the synagogue there. In Mark 6, 1, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, that's Nazareth, and his disciples followed him and on the Sabbath... He began to teach in a synagogue in Nazareth. And many who heard it were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Those were works that they had heard that were done in other places, because he was not doing those works there. Is not this the carpenter, uh, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and um, Simeon, or Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And what does it say? They took offense at him. In other words, isn't he just a normal person? 
And actually, Jesus did not do his miracles in their town there because of their unbelief. So the rumors had spread, and you go back to Mark chapter 3, but the rumors had spread in Nazareth, and his family was being questioned about Jesus' claim. So they walked there to try to protect Jesus, to bring him back there, to seize him. There was another group that was opposing him as well in verse number 22. Those were the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They were spreading false ideas about Jesus. Look at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. That's another name for Satan. And another rumor they spread was, and by the prince of demons, which is Satan, he casts out demons. So the religious leaders leveled two accusations against him. The first one was that he was demon possessed. The second accusation was that he was able to cast out demons because he had the power of Satan. And from an earthly perspective, you see both these groups, his family, and you see these religious leaders opposing Jesus. But there was something happening behind the scenes, right? There was a a larger cosmic war taking place. I mean, notice the scribes. What do they attribute Jesus' supernatural power to? To Satan, right? So think about it this way. They recognized something was happening here, right? There was something supernatural taking place at the hand of Jesus. It was undeniable. But instead of giving glory to God, they chose a smear campaign against Jesus. They took the reality of what was happening and the truth, and they twisted it to advance their own agenda. And from where does this come? Who is the one who originated this idea, who influences people to take truth and twist it and deceive? Right? That's Satan, right? The distortion of truth is a battle tactic Satan uses, and it comes from the pit of hell. And so the loser, Satan, opposes Christ, first of all, by distorting the truth. So first, let's look at the opposition from the loser, Satan. He opposes Christ by distorting the truth. Look at verse number 23. Jesus responds to the opposition, opposition and accusations of these religious leaders. Verse 23, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? We'll stop right there. Notice Jesus acknowledges the reality of Satan, right? He didn't say, hey guys, There's no really spiritual war taking place. Like, where'd you come up with this myth of Satan? That's not real. No, Jesus says, no, he's real. That's a reality. In our world today, in our society, a lot of people like to think of him as Satan, as just, well, that's a myth. That's something someone's come up with. And they believe that the evil in the world is just psychological and just within the the, kind of the mind of someone or people that maybe are a little twisted. Jesus clearly identifies he believed in the reality of spiritual demonic work. And notice how Satan works. He opposes God by distorting the truth. What does his family say, or what, is, what, do, what do people say about Jesus? They say that he is going crazy, right? They're saying he's not in his right mind. His family heard these rumors and wanted to go get Jesus out of that situation. What was the truth, though? Was Jesus crazy? Well, the truth is Jesus is the only person who has ever walked on this earth who clearly understands reality, right? I mean, I think about it this way. 
I've had times where I've taught four-year-olds class. I love that age group, by the way. That's the greatest age group to teach. So those who are doing that right now in children's church, God bless them. Sometimes I'd rather be doing that. No, just kidding. But I really love that age group. But sometimes you're in a group like that, you know, and the little kids are sitting around, and I would usually get a little puppet and do a little puppet, you know. There's a little boy usually that's there that's scared because he thinks the puppet's real, right? Sometimes there's a little girl that's sitting closer to the door because she believes her mom's about to come get her. My mom's about to get me. No, it's, we still got a while to go, you know. My mom's about to get me. No, we still have a while to go. And then you have the know-it-all kid that sits there, you know, and tries to answer every question. And he's the one that's talking about the elf in the shelf and how it was looking at him this Christmas and how no, he, and, you're, and you realize when you're sitting in the room, you're like, I'm the only one that has a grasp on reality, right? <laughs> but don't you think that's kind of how Jesus felt a little bit? I mean, here they come out, they're like, you're going crazy. He's crazy, right? And Jesus looks and he actually created the world. Like he's God. He can look into their minds. He knows what they're thinking about. He knows reality. And what Satan does is he twists reality. He twists the truth. Jesus was called crazy, but he was the only one that was truly sane. And the twisting of truth and reality is a tactic Satan uses to oppose God. So you see that here with the scribes as well. They said, oh, he's demon-possessed. Oh, he has the power of Satan. That's how he's able to cast out demons. But wrap your mind around that. Think about that. Satan opposed Jesus by smearing, by having a, a smear campaign against him, by saying that God's supernatural work through Jesus was actually the work of Satan. Right? So think about that. Satan takes the work of God and says, that's demonic. And then he takes his own demonic work and he says, that's God's, right? Isn't that kind of how this world works, though? You look around the world, you so people say, well, how come there's so many different religions? How many is, like, what Satan does, he takes something that looks somewhat true, but actually twists it into a lie. And he says, oh, that's from God, right? And he takes what's true and he twists it and says, oh, that's wrong. That's of Satan. And so he twists things. He, he, he lies. He deceives that's what you have with these scribes right here, right? These scribes, these religious leaders, they taught a false doctrine. They taught that you could follow rules. You can follow traditions. You can try to be good enough and God will accept you. He'll forgive you. Well, that's wrong. That's sinful, right? But that's what they presented. Well, where does that come from? Well, Jesus said, actually, in John chapter 8, verse 44, he looked at these religious leaders and he says, you are of your father, the devil. And your, and your will is to do your father's desires. In other words, what you're teaching, how you're living, it comes straight from Satan, for he's a liar and the father of lies, and they were believing the lies of Satan. Jesus announced that those religious leaders were following the will of Satan, believing his lies, and Satan distorts truth, calls religion true, right, and calls the way of God false. That's how he opposes God. He leads many astray, and his desire is to destroy people. I thought to illustrate this, I would give you an illustration of a gentleman. His name is David Nasser. You ever heard of him? This David Nasser was born in Iran, and his family um, followed the religion of Islam, and he grew up that way as well. In 1979, David's family had to flee Iran. You know what happened in 1979? Right, the Iranian Revolution, 
And so over a million people were slaughtered and were killed because of that revolution. And Muslim extremists took over that country. So he had to flee. His dad was in the military. And they were moderate Muslims, and they had to get out of the country. They came to America and lived in Alabama. And his dad started up a restaurant. And, and as, as David began to grow up, he felt like an outsider. And if you're an immigrant, you've come to this country, you kind of may feel like that maybe as well, especially if you don't speak the language right away and all that. And so he felt like an outsider. And by the time he got to ninth grade, he rejected religion because he saw what it did to his country. And so he's basically rejected that. His parents still followed Islam, but he rejected that. And then he wanted to be accepted. He went to his high school there and he realized that, you know, his culture, his background wasn't what was accepted at his high school, especially in Alabama there. So he went to the mall and did a makeover, you know, got new clothes and got a new hairstyle and became Americanized, just put it that way. And, uh, and then he went to high school and he tried to fit in, tried to do anything he could to become popular and, and be liked by everyone. He started going to parties. Soon he became an alcoholic in high school. Then he started going to parties and going to the back room and doing some drugs and became a drug addict. By his senior year of high school, he was depressed. He was low. His grade point average was 1.9. I think that's barely making it. And just even his own heart, his own soul was just so low that actually, as a senior in high school, he had many times where he contemplated how he could end his life. He was seeking happiness. He was seeking fulfillment in sin. His family wasn't doing really well either. They weren't really happy. They were having some struggles themselves. I think David is a good example of a person whose mind is distorted, right? I mean, his family believed and followed their religion and that their religion could give them what they needed. David followed his sins thinking that he could find joy in these worldly endeavors. And that deception, those deceptions, that's the work of the evil one. Like he's twisting our, our thinking and so we believe things that aren't true. And the truth is, God, there is a God, there is an afterlife, right? But the distortion of the theology of Islam, that someone can follow those tenets of Islam and they can get to paradise, that's not, that's not true. And, and, and the truth is God did create David to, to enjoy God and enjoy this world, but joy is not found through your own sinful heart and your own sinful desires. And so, so, so he was twisted in his thinking. That's how Satan works. And next, notice the Lord triumphs through the clarity of truth. The clarity of truth. Look at verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan rise has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So you can see the illustration Jesus is using here of a kingdom and of a strong man. And what Satan is doing here is, or what Jesus is doing here, I'm sorry, Jesus is teaching the truth. And he's illustrating with a parable of a kingdom and of a strong man. What Jesus does is he triumphantly counters the lies with truth. 
how do you respond to distortions and to lies? You go to the truth found in Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, my word is truth. And so I want you to notice that Jesus speaks the truth, and that's how he counters the attacks of Satan. And next, the loser opposes Christ by dominating with sin, dominating with sin. Look at verse 24. Notice how Jesus describes Satan and his evil forces in verse 24. Jesus said, Satan rules over what? A kingdom. If you look at verse 24, what's, what's he talking about there? What's that kingdom that he rules over? Well, it's a kingdom that deceitfully guides the hearts of people. It's, right, it's a kingdom that rules over people's hearts. It's an evil kingdom that powerfully destroys people by enslaving them to sin and wickedness. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 says this, in which you once walked, talking to people who have now become a believer in Christ, who are Christians. Once, before you were a Christian, you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Satan is a prince. He's a ruler over a kingdom. It's the kingdom of people's hearts. In verse 27, it it talks about him being strong and mighty, but also that he has goods that Jesus plunders. What are those goods? What's Jesus talking about? Well, those those goods are the, the hearts of people. Satan's goal is to destroy people with the poison of sin and with the eternal damnation awaiting them. 1 John 5, 19 says this. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's Satan. In other words, he has a power over people, an influence in their life, a hold on their souls. And isn't that what Satan is doing right now around this world? People are following his lies. Isn't that what David Nasser experienced, right? His life was being destroyed by sin. And I guess I wonder if some of you are facing that right now yourself. Your soul is at war, right? And you go to bed at night and you think, I hate myself. I hate my life. I hate my sin. What am I going to do? Let me tell you, you are being under the attack of the distortion of truth and under the attack of Satan. He's dominating you with sin. Satan opposes God by enslaving people to his menacing work of wickedness. And and I call Satan here a loser. Why? Because that's the reason Jesus came into this world is to defeat Satan. He is, he has been defeated. And that which leads us to the next point. And that is the Lord triumphs through the clarity of the truth, but also through conquering of redemption, the conquering of redemption on the cross. Verses 23 through 27, Jesus used an illustration to demonstrate that he has come to conquer Satan. Satan has a kingdom and he's united, not divided. And that's the point of his illustration is that Satan is not divided against himself. He's actually united against God. Satan's kingdom is united against God. However, he is still weaker than God and Christ will defeat him. Look at verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, 
that kingdom cannot stand. So Jesus is saying that, hey, actually, they are united against God. There's not a division with demons. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. So it's not logical that I'm casting out demons under the power of Satan. He's not divided against himself. But notice what he says at the end of that verse, verse 26. But is coming, that's Satan, he's coming to an end. He's about to conquer him. And there will be a day when he expels him from the presence of humanity forever. Verse 27 says, but no one can enter a strong man's house. Well, who's a strong man? That's Satan. And plunder his goods. What are those goods? Those are the hearts of people. Unless he first binds the strong man. That's Jesus binding the strong man. And then indeed he may plunder his house. And Jesus was declaring, I'm stronger than the evil one. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in this world. And when he was declaring that when I cast out demons, I am demonstrating that power and I am about to conquer him. How did Jesus conquer Satan? How did he conquer Satan? Well, if Satan's dominion are the hearts of men enslaved by sin and separated from God, then how did Jesus destroy the dominion of Satan and free the hearts of people and allow them to experience the freedom in Christ? Well, that's the whole point of his life, his death, and his resurrection, right? That's why he came. He came to purchase redemption with his life, with his death, with his resurrection. I mean, every day he was tempted as a man, but also as God, but he was tempted every day to sin, right? And his temptation was real. But every day he said no. I mean, every day for 33 years, Jesus defeated the devil. And then he went to the cross. And on that cross, God the Father punished the eternal Son of God for the offenses of each sinner against God. In other words, Jesus took the place of sinners. And he took the power of sin and the penalty of death away from Satan. And he purchased redemption. And then he rose again so he could prove that he had the ability to give new life. 1 John 3, 8 says... Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But listen to this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came. So he could free you from sin. So he could free you from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and then someday when you're in glory from the presence of sin. And why did he do it? Because he loves you. Jesus came because he loves you. Christ loved us and gave us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And friend, God loves you. Christ loves you. He came in this world to free you from the power of Satan. And the point is here that the Lord has already triumphed over sin. He's already triumphed over death and over Satan. The Lord conquered satan on that cross and he's still he's still influencing our world right but he's a defeated foe and there will be a day like i said when he will be bound forever but what does that mean for you it means you are able to be released from the power of sin and the penalty of death and be reconciled to god because of jesus christ i told you the story earlier of david naser Nasser, sorry, David Nasser. 
The power of sin had overwhelmed him and overcome him. He came to the place as a senior in high school. He said, I'm ready to end it all. He graduated from high school and he was sitting with a buddy in his house and he was smoking pot and his friend was uh, talking to him and his friend was saying, what's, what's wrong, David? I can see you're really down. You're really depressed. I mean, which is kind of dumb because like you're smoking pot. So, I mean, obviously like you're probably down depressed too. But it's interesting how God used this guy because this guy said, you know what? You should be encouraged. You should go to church. And David's like, I'm a Muslim. I don't go to church. I'm not going to go to, my dad would never let me go to church, you know? And he goes, why why would I go there anyways? And he goes, well, there's a lot of pretty girls at church. (laughs) And David thought, well, okay. And he's like, who? And so this friend started listing. He listed five girls. When he got to the last girl, David said, I'm in. And interesting, he went to his dad and fully thought his dad's going to say, you're never allowed in that church. And so he said, dad, can I go to church? And he said, his dad said, what church is it? And so it's a Baptist church in town in Alabama there. And he said, well, this is the church. And dad said, only that church. You know what happened? David didn't know, but that church had actually been going to his restaurant, his dad's restaurant. And uh, they were having a difficulty with having a restaurant, with having employees there because they didn't have enough money. So they needed help. And that church was volunteering at that, ch- that restaurant to help this guy out so they could give him the gospel. They didn't even know this was happening as far as with David. So David decided to go to that church. And when he walked in the door, there was a man named Larry, who is Korean, that came up to him and greeted him and befriended him, sat with him. And he started sharing the gospel with him. And then when David went home that week, Larry and a couple of his friends went to David's house and took his Bible and shared the gospel with him. And he started befriending him. They, they went to a restaurant together, and they started eating and, and fellowshipping in that way. In fact, at this restaurant they were at, um, there was a lady that came up to wait on them, and she was going through some hard times. And they all went to exit the restaurant, and this lady came out, and she said, oh, you guys, you left $100 here. I want to let you know that. And, and they, they all turned around and said, oh, we left it there for you. We heard you're going through some difficult times. And we just emptied our pockets and whatever we had. And David saw this and was like, there's something different about these people. And one Sunday, he sat in this church service like you're sitting in now, and he heard the pastor preach the gospel, and it clearly said about what Jesus had done for them, and he called them to come to Christ. And he read John 3.16, and the pastor read this verse, and David heard it this way. God so loved David Naser that he gave his one and only son that if I believe in him, I will not perish but have everlasting life. And that stung his soul. And he realized he needed Jesus. And he went home, was really wrestling with this, partly because if he told his parents, then they were going to kick him out of the house. And so he was struggling. Should I come to Christ? The Holy Spirit was convicting him of his need for Christ. He went to bed and was wrestling in his bed back and forth with the Lord. And he got up at one o'clock in the morning, knelt down next to his bed, and he accepted Christ. And he found the freedom of forgiveness. And joy swept his soul. Uh, it did mean, actually, he got kicked out of the house when he told his dad. But something changed in his life. He came to Christ in repentance and, and faith, and God gave him forgiveness, which leads me really to the next point we have. We're going to kind of skip over the, the um, talk about uh, um, the condemnation that's found in, in Satan. But we're going to go to, right now, the triumph that's found in Christ. And the Lord triumphs through the clarity of truth, the conquering of redemption, but also the commuting of the guilty. Now, commuting, we're not talking about commuting in a car, right? 
We're talking about the idea of forgiveness. It's the idea that he, God releases us from the penalty of death by substitution of his son. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking. And think about this statement. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Think about that. Jesus presents two amazing truths in these two verses here. First of all, people can receive forgiveness for any sin. In the next verse, verse 28, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And the next one is, next amazing truth, is there is one sin that never receives forgiveness. Now, I know you're wanting me to get to that next one, but let's look at the first one first. First notice, the Lord triumphs as he commutes or forgives the guilty. The meaning of this word forgive here is to release. When you're forgiven by God, you are you are forever released from the power of sin through Christ. You don't have to live under the power of sin. You're released from the penalty of sin and then someday from the presence of sin. Think about that, though. Verse 28. All sins will be forgiven. Now, that's not saying there that God at that moment forgave everybody's sin in the whole world. It's also not saying that all people everywhere have their sins forgiven. What, what Jesus is teaching, he's saying when, when God forgives a person, all of their sins are forgiven. Every sin is forgiven. There is no sin that God cannot forgive. In other words, every sin has the potential to be forgiven by God's grace. And you might be thinking, oh, I've done some really bad things. I'm just a really bad person. But God says here, Jesus promises here, all sins can be forgiven through the power of Christ. This means that people like Paul, a religious murderer, were forgiven by God. King David was a hypocritical liar, forgiven by God. In Luke 7, a prostitute comes to Christ, and Jesus promises she's forgiven by Christ. And the list goes on. Jesus has the potential to forgive every sin of a sinner that comes to him in repentance and faith. And his work of redemption on the cross is what pays for it. But I think I want you to notice something here that his forgiveness is conditional. It's conditional. Like it's not automatic. You don't just get forgiven. It's actually conditioned upon your repentance and faith in Christ. And so when a person repents and believes in the gospel, believes in Christ, every sin, past, present, and future is forgiven. And that's why Paul can confidently write Colossians 1.13, that Jesus has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're adopted into God's family in whom we have redemption, purchased on the cross, right? The forgiveness of sins. So Paul was confident that no sin would ever be held against him because he came to Christ in repentance in faith. Think about it this way. This guy right here bought a lottery ticket in March 2015. But he didn't come forward, and people couldn't figure out who he was. So, so KABC TV reported about him and showed this picture on TV. This guy saw his picture and realized he had won the lottery. It was a million dollars, over a million dollars that he had won. So he was pretty excited, but he couldn't find his ticket. He searched everywhere. And, of course, the news was talking about him. Here's this guy, if you've seen him. 
So he finally came forward and he said, I'm the guy up there, but you can't win the lottery unless you have your ticket still, right? This guy had the potential to cash in for a million dollars, right? And he never got it because he never found his ticket. I think the interesting thing to think about, this illustration I'm kind of using here is for this. This man heard the reality of his victory. And he tried to cash it in, but he, he couldn't, right? Because he didn't have his ticket. Jesus Christ, kind of say, if I could say this in a kind of a crude way, he's won the lottery for you, right? And if you have to understand the reality of what Jesus has done for you, but you also have to have it applied to you, right? You have to, by faith, trust him. And when you do that, when you repent and you believe, he gives you, Jesus Christ gives you all of his riches, right? Of forgiveness and of the home, of a promise of a home in heaven, of being reconciled to God. And last, the loser opposes Christ by darkening hearts. The Bible says the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Look at verse 28 or verse 29. It says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. What is the sin here that never has forgiveness? This is what you're all waiting for, right? You're like, when is he going to get to this and tell us the answer? Well, come back next. No, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> well, Jesus is very specific here as to what this sin was. Notice how he describes the unforgivable sin in verse 29. Verse 29, he says, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. And he illustrates this in verse 30. He says, They were claiming, the religious leaders were claiming that Jesus had an unclean spirit. The Holy Spirit was doing a work through Jesus. The truth was so clear that the supernatural work of through Jesus was from God. Right? He cast out demons. And logically, demons don't cast out demons, right? And a man's hand was withered in the synagogue and he restored it whole. There's a man with leprosy in, in Mark, the beginning of Mark, right? And Jesus heals him whole. Like Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. I mean, these religious leaders, they looked at the scriptures, they opened their eyes. They could see the Holy Spirit's work was real. That's what was happening around them. But they chose to reject the work of the Holy Spirit around them and within them. And here, here then is the sin that is unforgivable. It is a sin that rejects the work of the Holy Spirit. The truth was right in front of these men. The Holy Spirit was at work and they rejected the working of the Holy Spirit. When a person sees the truth, when they see the reality of, of God and they reject the Holy Spirit, their heart is it's further hardened. And I believe at some point, forgiveness is out of reach. William Hendrickson writes it this way. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. And friend, God, friend, God is patient and he's kind. and He waits for you to come to him. And he calls you, but you need to be warned because if you choose to reject the truth, when God reveals it to you, if you choose to reject the Holy Spirit's work in your life, you're walking down a path that leads forever away from God. Romans chapter 1 verse 28 says this, that since then, these, these people who reject God, they didn't 
see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, which I believe is what he's talking about here. The same type of thing. The Holy Spirit was at work in them and they rejected God and God said, okay, go ahead. I'll give you what you want, which is really, isn't that the definition of hell? Right? People reject God on earth, say, I don't want God in my life. God, get out of my life. And God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. The Holy Spirit was at work in David, right? Nasser, Nasser, sorry, after he understood the gospel. And he went to bed that night and he wrestled with the Holy Spirit. And what did he do? He surrendered. <laughs> I surrender to you, Lord. And praise the Lord, he was saved as an 18-year-old man. Now, you might be in here and you might be a Christian. You might be thinking, oh, have I committed this sin? Am I in a place of unforgivableness? Well, if you're a Christian, the answer is absolutely not. Like if you're a believer, you have and are responding on a daily basis to the Spirit's work of repentance and faith. And you're not perfect, right? Not perfect. But by God's grace, God's working in you. He has you. You're secure. You're in Christ. And you can't commit an unforgivable sin. But friend, if you're not a Christian, you might wonder, have I committed this sin, right? And I guess my response would be this. Christ calls you to repent and to believe. And if he's calling you right now, respond. Like, come to Christ. Repent and believe right now. Say, God, I need you right now, right in your seat. Just call, on to, the, call to the Lord. Christ's invitation of forgiveness is offered to all who repent and believe. And I believe this, that if someone's down this path of unforgivableness, I believe they wouldn't even care. Like, if, you in here, if you're in here and you care, you're like, oh, I don't wonder. If you're caring, then you're not there, right? I believe this kind of person here doesn't care. I mean, these religious leaders, they didn't care. Like, all they cared about, their own little world, the self-centered world of their religious system they had. And they want to protect that, protect themselves. They didn't care about Jesus. They openly rejected Jesus. You might be in here and you, you might ask, like, how do we know who these people are? Like, how do we determine who's on the path of unforgivableness? Well, I believe it's not our place to pass this kind of judgment. Like, Jesus, he knew because he could see their minds. In their hearts, right? We can't do that. We can't see the heart and mind of someone. Only God knows, if you want to say it that way. So I think the Holy Spirit, God knows uh, who's on this path. And I don't think it's appropriate for us to ever point at a person and say, well, that person's too far from God, right? That's not our place to do that. And I don't even think a person who's on this path, like I said earlier, can even see it themselves. Their hearts are too darkened by sin. They're completely oblivious to it. But Jesus' point of saying this was, is to warn, right? There is a warning here. If you see the light and you reject the light, there's a point where the Holy Spirit will stop shining the light and you will face an eternity without Christ. Honestly, if you're in here without Christ, that should scare you. You might think, well, I have a long time. First of all, you might not, right? And secondly, you don't know how long the Holy Spirit will continue to reveal the truth to you. Messages like this sometimes worry us for those who... who have loved ones and friends who are without Christ, because we might think, well, are, are, are they beyond the place? Are they, are, are they at that place? And again, I think it's not appropriate for us to judge that, to go down that road. But here, here's the amazing conclusion, I think, to this story. Because you have a group of people who reject God, and Jesus says that there's a sin that's unforgivable, right? Here's a warning. You guys better be careful about rejecting the Spirit's work because you're going to get to a place where he won't work anymore. 
and, and reveal it to you. But then there are a group of people actually in this passage that reject Christ, but end up coming to Christ. Do you know who those people are? Those are his siblings, right? That's his family. You, I'm not going to read the verses, but if you look in verses 33 through 35, there's, it's talking about uh, his, his family coming to him and Jesus' siblings. They don't believe in him. And I'm just pause and say, I don't really know how Mary fits into this right here. It may be that she was just following these siblings or uh, his half-brothers and half-sisters down here. And she was just being a part of it, but she wasn't definitely leading it. That's, that's very clear that that's, that's not happening. Uh, I don't think that happened here. You look at the rest of her testimony. But in verse 33 and 34, Jesus says that hey, this is not my family out there. This is my family, those who do the will of God. That might surprise you to hear something like that. Why would Jesus say something like that? That's, that doesn't seem very nice. Well, Jesus used the opposition of his own family to make a point, which was that God is gathering his family on earth to live with him forever. And God's family are those who do his will. That is, that is God's family are those who repent and believe the gospel and follow him. And it's amazing to consider this, but that these family members, his half-brothers and sisters on the outside there, actually eventually came to Christ. After Jesus' resurrection, we see them coming to Christ. In fact, in fact, James became the pastor of the church of Jerusalem and wrote an epistle, right? Jude also wrote an epistle, his brother. And so his brothers on earth rejected him. They believed at this point the distortions of the truth about Jesus. They were under some kind of domination from sin, from Satan, because they were not believers yet. Their hearts were darkened. But the truth eventually clarified who Jesus was. Eventually they saw, they believed Jesus conquered on the cross, and they found forgiveness in Christ. Which I think is kind of a cool way to think about this passage, to end it. It's not a hopeless passage, but actually, eventually in the end, the Holy Spirit kind of broke through their hearts, and they, re- they surrendered to the Lord. And the, the man I was telling you about earlier, David, It's interesting, he became a Christian at that moment, and now he serves giving spiritual counsel at Liberty University. And eventually, his whole family came to Christ. Isn't that pretty neat? There's a cosmic war taking place in our world, isn't there? A war that's being fought against your soul, against my soul. And Satan is a loser. He's been defeated, and there'll be a day where he will be bound forever. But he still opposes God. He distorts truth. He dominates with sin. He darkens hearts. And and maybe you're in here today and you find yourself in the midst of this battle. And the hope I, I have for you is that you can find victory in Christ. The Lord triumphs through the clarity of the truth, conquering of the cross in the commuting of the guilty. And friend, if you're in here today and you don't know Christ, and you have never repented and believed, I invite you to answer the call of Christ today. Come to him. Come to him. Maybe you're a believer in here, and you are a Christian, and you say, there's a war still taking place in my heart, and I know that's taking place for everyone, but I really need some help. I need some help from God's word. I need someone to help me. Listen, we are here to help you. And Jesus Christ is ever-present, interceding for you, and you can come to him right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Bow your heads before the Lord. Maybe you are in here and you need Christ. You are lost. 
If you have never come to him in repentance and faith and you today hear the gospel, would you just bow your heart right now and cry out to the Lord? You might think, well, I'll just wait. I'll wait till another time. But now is the time. Today is a day of salvation. Cry out to him. Turn from your way. Turn to Christ. And Christian, maybe you're struggling with some sin in your life. Don't quench the Spirit's work in your heart. Don't allow sin to again dominate you. Continue to follow Christ. Call out to him right now. God, help me. Christ, come alongside me. Father, I ask for your continued work by the power of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of each person listening to my voice. Oh God, I pray for those souls who are without you, who are blinded and and lost. I pray that God, you will shine the light of the gospel, of the glorious gospel of Christ into their minds so they can see the truth right now. And I pray they'll, they'll come to you. And then we continue to face battles on a regular basis. I'm so thankful we have victory in Christ. So I pray our people in here, this church, I pray we will, we will recognize that. We will, as, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that we will, we will agree with you that we are dead and in Christ and that we have been resurrected in Christ and that, God, we will therefore live as you truly have um, have positioned us in Christ as victors through Christ. And I pray that our church will be a church that lives in the victory because we serve a, a Lord who has gained the victory. In Jesus' name, amen.